Um, okay, so I'm back again. So clearly you didn't complain loud enough or long enough last time. So it's your own fault that you have to listen to me again. Um, you're going to have to forgive me today if I refer to my notes a lot more than I did last time, uh, mainly because it's near the end of term. And if any of you know any teachers, you know that we lose our mental capacity near the end of term to do anything. And we're only sort of buoyed along by junk food and caffeine-related products, or in my case, pink gin. Um, as I'm going to be doing the preach today, you'll probably be thinking, hey, she's saying some of the same stuff that Chris said last week and the lady who was visiting from Cambridge. Now, I promise you, I'm not just copying. I didn't just go, oh, that was a good idea. I just like that, my speech. I wrote this sermon a couple of weeks ago when my friend Becky had Nathan for me. That gives me the headspace to be able to do it. Um, for me, when God repeats himself, that's just his awesome way of saying, I've got something that I want to say to you as individuals, as a church, and I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it again, I'm going to say it again. So you're hearing me and you're doing it. So I am going to click the thing on and hope it works. I don't know whether you did that for me or... Yes, it works. Okay. First of all, I'm going to pray if that's okay. And then we'll get looking at this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for the freedom in which we can do this. We thank you for the safety in which we can do this. And we just pray that we would make the most of this opportunity, as Amanda said, to have our ears open, listening to what you have got to say to us. Just pray that you help me to be clear in what I say and what you've given me to say. Amen. So we've been going through the letter of Philippians. Um, we've been doing that for a couple of weeks now, haven't we? And I've been enjoying it. Um, this letter of Paul has often been described as a letter of joy. And what we're going to find out today is that some of Paul's joy comes from the people that God had placed in his life. Now, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is not a passage that's rich in creatments or deep <laughs> theological discussion. Um, but we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. So there's still plenty that we can learn from this passage. Um, the main focus, we're going to be thinking about Paul and subsequently ourselves. And then what we can learn about church and how we can be church here at Freedom. So I'm going to read all the passage first to kind of give us a flavour. And then we're going to be unpicking it as we go along against those two themes. So it's up on the screen or you can have it in your Bibles. Uh, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. So I'm going to read it from this one rather than that one. Um, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So the first thing that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at Paul's humanity. Um, now, hopefully, after studying this book for a little bit, it's not going to come as a surprise to you that Paul wasn't superhuman. In fact, he was human. He wasn't an abstract theologian who was totally divorced from his emotions, from being in relationship with people. That's a kind of skewed view that some people have of Paul. And we're going to be seeing a little bit more about him and his humanity as we look through this passage. We get to see 
how he is relational, relational and how he's got important relationships in his life that he couldn't do without. Now, Timothy is an easy name to say, okay? Epaphroditus is not an easy name to say. So from now on in, I'm going to refer to him as E. <laughs> not the tablet that you're not supposed to buy, okay? But E, because it's just easier than trying to stumble out Epaphroditus every time I say his name, okay? So Paul has many wonderful things to say about Timothy and E in this passage. He talks about Timothy as being a son. He says he's like a son with his father. And in 1 Timothy, we see he describes him as a true son in the faith. He says he's got no one else like him. And of E, he says he was a brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. So it's obvious that Paul holds them in high esteem and he values his relationship with them. There's an acknowledgement here that he couldn't do what he does for the gospel, couldn't get through the experiences that he's had in life without their friendship, their prayer, and their support. As well as being relational, we also see Paul as a man with feelings and emotions. I don't like talking about feelings and emotions, so this bit will be interesting. Um, But it was interesting again this morning that actually Jay asked us, let's be honest, and this fits in with what we're going to be looking at, be honest about how we feel and our emotions. So in verse 19, he says he'll be cheered when he receives news of you. And he's talking about the Philippi church. Um, Now, we've already heard how this church was doing really well in their mission to live out to be the light to the world. So Paul is proud of them and what they're doing in Jesus' name. This church, when he hears news of them, makes his heart happy. And this made me think of my friend Anna, who's going to listen to this online. So this is just a message for Anna. Anna, I love you. Um, uh, I grew up with Anna, and she now uh, lives uh, in Mozambique. And she works for a charity there called I Reach Africa. And she runs two schools out there. Um, and when I hear how she's getting on, how God is using her and others to literally change people's futures because they're giving children an education who wouldn't have access to it normally, then it makes my heart glad. It cheers my soul when I hear about her. I'm like Paul, I'm happy and proud to stand with her in the work that she does by praying for her and supporting her in other ways. And it kind of got me to wondering, like, how would people feel about news of us? Not just individually, but collectively as a church. Would what we were doing, would it cheer their hearts? Like the Philippi church cheer Paul's heart. In this passage, we also see that Paul's got a variety of emotions. So firstly, he was cheered about the church. And then in verse 27, we see that he's being sad. If I go, I might make it easy if I go back to that, then you can refer to that. We see Paul describe himself as being full of sorrow. He talks about sorrow upon sorrow. And this is to do with E, when E got ill and nearly died. He says, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. We see here that Paul's emotions are bound up with the relationship that he's got with his co-worker in Christ. Because of his relationship with E, it would have been a deep, unbearable sorrow if he lost him. Now, Paul, we know, is absolutely no stranger to sorrow, is he? (laughs) You read in 2 Corinthians 11, that big long list of all the things that's happened to Paul. He had a lot of sorrow filled in his life. He's been arrested, he's been imprisoned, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked. And when we read that list, those are kind of all related to himself personally, what happened to him. But we also see that he has sorrow to do with being overwhelmed by concern for the church. So sometimes his sorrow is not just for what happened for him, it's in relationship with other people as well. And so we see that again here, in terms of if he lost his friend, for him that would be sorrow upon sorrow. Too much grief if he lost his friend. Now in verse 28, we also see Paul use another of his emotions. He's going all over the place in this passage, up and down, up and down. And he uses a word for emotion which is used and misused greatly in today's society, anxiety. He says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, meaning E, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. 
Now, anxiety is defined sort of clinically as a feeling of unease, worry, or fear over things that may or may not happen. Now, some of you will know your Bible really well, and you'll be going, eh, wait a minute, isn't Paul the one who's going to be telling us not to be anxious, not to be worried about anything? And he's just said, he's, if he gets E back again, then he'll be pleased because he'll have less anxiety. Doesn't seem to make any sense, does it, that? Now, you'd be right, because in chapter 4, this is 4 to 6, we'll go all the way through, we get this absolutely fantastic creatment, don't we, when he tells us not to be anxious about anything, but to rejoice always. So he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. But let's be real, all of us get anxious. Okay, that's a human emotion. Paul was human. We're human, I hope. <laughs> so we're going to get anxious. Paul, he is anxious because he thought he might die. He was worried. He was fearful. He was scared about something that may or may not happen. He was also worried about how the church in Philippi was feeling about hearing news about E being so ill and E nearly dying. He's experiencing what the NRV Study Bible comments on as the legitimate cares and concerns that come with the Christian life and the gospel ministry because he's bound up not just with E, but with the church in Philippi, who sent E as well. The Bible doesn't tell us not to be real about anxiety. And it's great that a deep, abstract theologian like Paul is saying, I'm anxious. Instead, what the Bible tells us to do through faith is what to do with that anxiety that we get, about not being anxious, about praying in every situation, presenting our requests to God. Now, the person who's doing preaching on this is going, oh no, she's going to do my preach. I don't know who's doing that. Is anybody losing their patience? Amanda, do not be anxious. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm I'm looking forward to that being unpacked, if I'm perfectly honest, but I'm not going to do it. But what the point I'm trying to make is, is that Paul's shared life with Timothy and E in the church in Philippi is what binds him together in them with gladness because it can cheer his heart, but they can also give him sorrow at the thought of losing him. They could also make him anxious. And we know that when he talks about other churches... Other churches made him a bit mad. Other churches made him sad because he's bound in relationship with them. We can't go through life without relationships. We can't go through this life without emotions, without feeling some of those different things that Paul felt. Um, Tom Wright, the author of the Bible for Everyone series, I mentioned him last time, he's really good. (laughs) In his sections on Philippians, he writes as if he was Paul and he says this, I'm just going to read it from there. He says, I am not a stoic. I don't believe that all our human emotions are silly surface noise and that we should get down beneath them to a calm and troubled state. That's not what I mean by joy. The joy I'm talking about goes hand in hand with hope. It doesn't mean that everything is already as it should be. If we just had to think about that list of what Paul had already endured for working for the gospel to know that everything is not as it should be. It means that with Jesus now enthroned as Lord, we know it will eventually get there. But if while we are waiting for that day, we pretend that we don't have human emotions, we pretend that we don't need human emotions, then we are denying part of what God has given us. In Jesus himself, we see human emotions. He wept when his friend died. He wept in agony at the garden of what was to come. So it's okay if we do as well. It's having that kind of now, but not yet mentality. Now we're in a messy world of emotions and relationships. Sometimes the relationships bring us joy and they make our hearts glad. Sometimes they stretch us to the point of breaking. Sometimes they make us be anxious. Yeah? But we need to be real about that. But there is also that unmistakable joy 
that perfection is coming, that there will be no more anxiety, no more illness, no more death, no more sorrow. And that actually here on this earth it is possible to be in unity with one another, to be partnering with one another and working for the gospel together. In terms of what we can learn then about Paul's humanity and subsequently ourselves is do we have people like Timothy and E in our lives who we could describe in the way that Paul described? And the flip side of that, who do we support like Timothy and E supported Paul? Who do we make their hearts glad when they hear news of us? And how real are we in our relationships with others? About our feelings, about asking for help and support. And my friends Becky and Kathy are wetting themselves inside now, laughing at me, because they know that I is no good at asking for help, that I is no good at saying what my emotions and my feelings are. They're going, ha, ha, ha. But that's what I love about preaching, is that God's talking to me as well. He says, Rachel, you can't say that without being honest and saying you're rubbish at it. So if you say, Rachel, are you okay? I will go, yes. Even if I've had the most horrendous morning getting to school, church which sometimes happens um i will just say i'm okay so that gives you a heads up now you're going to be going is she really okay let's look for telltale signs but i know i'm not very good at being honest about my emotions but actually as church together the only way to be church together is if we are honest if we can support and encourage one another yeah the next thing we're going to be thinking about is how we can be church I'm going to be quick today, so you'll be glad the people did all those notices before that. Um, So the second thing is going to be about church. So we can find out how we can be as individuals in the church, but also how to be church all together as well. So we're going to look back at the passage again, but we're going to be focusing on Timothy first and what we can learn about Timothy. So I'm going to read that bit out from this bit as well. So again, it's on the screen, slightly bigger print that time, so you might be able to read it a bit better. Um, It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So it's like Paul really is writing a reference for Timothy, uh, something I seem to do a lot of in my work. My uh, teaching assistants keep leaving me. (laughs) Nothing to do with working with me, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, My school only seems to really offer temporary contracts, so they just move on so they can get a permanent contract somewhere else. Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, So I know what you should include in a reference, because I've written an awful lot of them over this year, and last year as well. Um, And yet Paul doesn't really seem to put in what we would expect him to put in for a reference for Timothy. He doesn't say he's a great preacher. He doesn't say he's a gifted man of God. He doesn't say he's devout. He doesn't say he's a brilliant leader or pastor or he's excellent at talking in tongues. Instead, he sums him up in that one line. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Other versions say genuinely cares for your welfare. He's holding up Timothy as an example of what he was describing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, when he said, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we are concerned for others, then we are also mirroring the interests of Jesus because Jesus was concerned for others, not just for his church, but Jesus was concerned for the wider world as well. Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible, he says, when we look out for others, for their their interests and their welfare, when we put them above ourselves, 
It is like Jesus' life spilling out into the lives of those who receive him. And then it continues to spill out all over the place. Yeah? In Matthew 5, verses 15 to 16, we're reminded that when we let our light shine before men, they will see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. We, and subsequently the church, are often at our most effective when we're serving others. And those from the outside, that sounds rude, doesn't it? Those from the outside, you know what I mean? Those are not in church. When they look in, they see that. They see that compassion, compare, so I care and love for one another. They also see then our outward care and our compassion. So I was thrilled to hear about we've got a theatre social action project. Marvellous. We're a small church. To have three social action projects, don't underestimate that. I've been in big churches that did nothing. So three social action projects with, small, with a small group of people is fabulous. When we do that, People can look in and see, not only do they care for one another, they're not just trapped in a bubble, they're caring for other people as well. That is effective gospel ministry, working for the gospel, when people can see that in us. In John chapter 13, verse 35, we know that Jesus says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And we talked about that before. Church can be messy sometimes. Being real can be difficult with each other. Being in relationship can be hard. But when we love one another, when we put somebody else's interests before our own, then the world will look in and they will see Jesus. And they'll want to know more. Yeah. In verse 22, we also see uh, Paul describing his relationship with Timothy kind of in terms of like an apprenticeship or kind of a mentoring sort of idea. He talks about, um, as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. Now, it's not my place here to expand on or theorise about the use of like apprenticeship sort of mentoring models in this church, but I do know that they do work. Um, and that when you have that kind of relationship where you can partner with someone who's been doing it a lot longer than you and has got more experience, then it gives you that much needed relationship and accountability challenge and thoughtful insights and a real deeper way of doing life together and partnering with the gospel. So it's worth thinking about, is there someone that you want to be like a son with his father, someone that you want to follow along with, learn how they do things, see how Jesus has used them and get alongside them as well. We're going to look at what we could learn from E and how he's described by Paul as well. And that E came from the church of Philippi on their behalf with money and to be with Paul and to look after him. So he came to do what they couldn't collectively do, but he as an individual could. So we're just going to read this passage and then we're going to draw some different bits out of that. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now again, we see as Paul in kind of, it's, almost, it's like a reference again in terms of the words that he uses to describe him. And he uses again very relational terms as to how he works with E. He, taught, he describes him as a brother, a co-worker and a fellow soldier. Someone like Timothy who worked with him for the gospel. In verse 30, we hear how he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to give Paul help. Now, we don't have any other kind of information to help us know, well, you know, was the illness related to that? Was the illness something different? We don't know how he almost died. 
and what illness, what illness he had. But what we do know here is that he was willing to give up his life to work with Paul to partner for the gospel. So we see here then an echo of the example of Jesus, who was willing to give up his life for what God wanted. Um, so he's an example of how Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus. Now when, I wasn't here for that preach, but when you read back through the verses, when you unpick what it means to have the mindset and the attitude of Christ Jesus, boy, we're in a lot of trouble, aren't we? We're going to try and do that by ourselves. Uh, the only way you're going to do that is through the Holy Spirit and through relationships with other people. Because actually that mindset involves, involves being humble. Some of us aren't so good at that. I'm not so good at that. <laughs> being obedient. Ooh, yeah, I'm not so good at that either. Um, and in the passage it says being obedient even to death and being a servant. Now, the Christian life isn't easy, is it? There are things that we do give up and there are things that have to change. And it isn't always easy being in community with one another either. But the example of E, and then when I was thinking about this, actually the example of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world is that they have the mindset and the attitude of Christ Jesus, that they are literally willing to die for the sake of the gospel. And people are willing to go out and support them and encourage them sacrificially, maybe in danger of their own lives as well, to partner with them in the work for the gospel that they're doing. So we've got some big examples to follow in terms of having that mindset and that attitude of Christ Jesus. As well as seeing what type of people Timothy and E are, we're going to see how the church was supposed to treat them. So these guys sound really super cool, don't they? They're brothers, they're fathers, like, like a son with his father, they're co-workers. And it says how the church is to treat people like them. It says in verse 29 of E, to welcome him in the Lord with great joy and to honour men like him. And that got me thinking as to how do we honour people in our lives um, and in the church as well. Um, in my school we had, notice the, the past tense had, when I explain what it is. We don't have it anymore, which is very sad. So we had a staff shout-out board. Um, so in the staff room, and you could put a post-it note up with something that you wanted to say thank you to somebody for, that you wanted to honour them and show them that you appreciated what it is that we, they had done. And then they all got put in a little raffle thing and then picked out like a prize. One got a prize at the end of the term from the head teacher. Now, my post-it notes consisted mainly of thanking my TAs for changing lots of smelly, runny nappies, uh, wiping snotty noses, chasing children to put their clothes back on, helping staff and children not get bitten, and rescuing children who climbed out of windows. <laughs> they like to do that. And they like to sit in the sink in the water tray outside as well. Um, so now you're thinking, I can see why your TAs left you, Rachel. It's not the contracts. No, no, it's the children. It's not the children. We all love the children. But when I used to put that stuff up there, and you think, oh my goodness, why did I bother doing that? Then I would go in the staff room and hear the buzz from my staff going, hey, Rachel, you put another one up for us, thanks so much. Oh, it's mad being in Ash class, isn't it? And they appreciated the fact that I'd taken the time to put something up to say thank you for them because they'd gone above and beyond what they needed to do in their jobs. And sometimes, just thanking them for doing their jobs, not even that they went above and beyond, just that they did their jobs. Now... When Paul wrote his letter to Timothy and E, he wrote it so he knew they would read it. He knew they would read that letter to Philippi. He knew they would read what he wrote about them. Yeah? Um, now, I had the privilege recently of writing a part of a eulogy uh, for my beloved friend who passed away at the end of April. And uh, difficult as that was, and it still is, um, there are many things that it taught me. And the main one is actually the importance of honouring people for who they are and what they do while they're still with us. A little bit late to stand up in church and say, how much you love someone and what they meant to you. I got the opportunity to say that to her face um, before she died. So, but we don't often know, do we, what's going to happen in the future. So actually, it's really important that we honour people 
for who they are and appreciate them for what they do right here and right now. Now, when I talk about that in terms of the church, I'm not just talking about bigging up our preachers before they come to talk, although I do appreciate that, thank you very much, um, or a positive spiel about any kind of visiting leaders that are coming. It is much more than that, although that is good to do. It's a culture of honour for who we are as a church together, that we are a body made up of many parts who we couldn't function without. There isn't one part that is better than the other. Me standing up here doesn't make me better than the person that serves tea and coffee. I'll do that as well. (laughs) Um, We're all here together, all partnering in the work of the gospel together. So we need to honour each other. So this church, not just this one, but local and global. And again, one of the things I love about this church is it's... I've been in other New Frontiers church where it's just... That's their church, yeah? And the rest of the world doesn't sort of exist. And one of the things I love about this church is you partner with other churches. Okay, well, what's Frontline doing? What's Judah and what they, Rachel Cole, what are they doing? Can we partner with them for the work of the gospel? Don't need to be exclusive. We don't need to be just by ourselves. We need to work with other people. And we need to recognise what they're doing, honour them and partner with them for that. So to use the terms, as Paul says, they are our brothers and our sisters. They are our fellow workers and our fellow soldiers. We are family. We are workers alongside each other for the gospel and the great harvest. And we are in a fight together against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, we are bound to one another, whether we like it or not. <laughs> we need to look after each other's interests and, other, and our welfare. We need to put others in front of ourselves. We need to reflect that attitude of Christ Jesus to be humble, to be obedient, to live sacrificially as we work in relationship with one another for the gospel. So this is where I'm finishing. Um, So I want us to think, well, what can we do today or this week to honour others? Not just in church, but in in the wider part of of our family and where we work as well. How we can show an interest in in the welfare of others. How can we partner with them in unity for the gospel? just going to end with a quote from Tom Wright. He says, friendship in the gospel across barriers of race, geography, culture and class is an excellent way of helping today's church to be what Paul believed it should be, the single new humanity, the light in God's dark world. So that's not my call, it's God's call to you today. How are you, how are you going to do that? How are we going to be as individuals in this church, as church collectively, and church is part of that wider local church as well. Um, so thank you for listening. I've managed to remember most of the stuff for my thing. I'll have a gin later on. I didn't have one this morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's for later. Um, 